Welcome back to Generation Putin from the Seattle Globalist and PRX, the Public Radio Exchange. I'm Brooke Gladstone. We've been talking about Vladimir Putin and a new generation of protesters in Russia. But while all eyes are on Moscow, dissent is also boiling in other former Soviet republics, like Kazakhstan. The movie Borat doesn't exactly capture the complexity of this Central Asian country. That's Borat's Kazakhstan. The real Kazakhstan is showing signs of cultural liberalization. In the cities, countercultures and gay rights movements are gaining strength. But the country ranks right next to Iran on the Transparency International Corruption Index, and it's ruled by Nur Sultan Nazarbayev. He's Kazakhstan's first, and so far only, president. You could think of him as really old school, probably the last generation that was really in power, that had lots of power already at the time the Soviet Union collapsed. That's Scott Radnitz, an associate professor of politics in the former Soviet Union at the University of Washington. Kazakhstan is often seen as a soft authoritarian regime, and it portrays itself as benevolent. They say, sure, we're not a democracy, but we're keeping the peace. It may call itself benevolent, but that government is even less tolerant of political protests than Moscow. And when protests have been tried here, they've sometimes ended tragically. Sarah Studeville has that story. Genozen is an oil town in the west of Kazakhstan. It's near the Caspian Sea, which is the site of one of the world's biggest oil discoveries in decades. In Genozen, hundreds of oil workers had been striking on and off for years, demanding better pay. On December 16, 2011, those strikes erupted in violence. In the video we're hearing, you see police with shields chasing after people in the streets people falling down. You see a man trying to escape on one leg after being shot. There are conflicting stories from that day. But one thing is certain. The authorities had decided to crack down. The shooting happened on the 20th anniversary of Kazakhstan's independence from the Soviet Union. A big celebration was planned. All kinds of people filled the square, along with the strikers. Police shot and killed 14 people in Genozen that day. Less than a year later, driving through Genozen, there's no sign of what happened. The streets are all freshly paved, workers are busily planting trees and flowers and trying to tamp down the windy desert dust. Human rights activists tell me that before the shooting, this town barely had a paved road. I met a man named Tolokan Turgenbayev. His son was 27 years old and he worked for Kazakhstan's state-owned oil company. He, his son didn't go to the strike, but he decided to go to the festival, and at 11 o'clock he was killed. He left behind two daughters, three and one and a half years old. Turgenbayev held one of his little granddaughters as he talked to me. The old, oldest girl asked, asks all, all the time, where is your father, and they don't know what to answer. Turgenbayev blames the police for what happened to his son. And he says the government is on the side of the oil companies, not the people. (laughs) 
University of Washington, Associate Professor Scott Radnitz specializes in politics in the post-Soviet world. The shootings in Janozen were surprising because this is the kind of thing that's not supposed to happen in a place like Kazakhstan, which is extremely eager for international recognition. Kazakhstan has made an effort to respond to what happened in Janozen. Several of the police officers are serving jail sentences. And that's good for the country's international image. But just like Putin did with the protesters in Moscow, Kazakhstan also put the strike's organizers on trial, saying they incited social hatred. The lead activist just got seven and a half years in prison. The real question is when push comes to shove, if Nazarbayev is ever faced with a serious protest movement, how far would it go in order to defend the regime? The true test of change in many post-Soviet countries comes, Radnitz says, if and when entrenched leaders, like Nazarbayev, finally hand power over to someone else. Kazakhstan is a nation of contradictions. Like in Russia, all that oil has brought money and jobs to the country. Young entrepreneurs are flourishing. And despite the political repression, there are surprising cultural developments. Right in the center of Almaty, there's this gay bar. Drag queens put on a show there every night. And it's so interesting for this new gay bar to have opened up in Kazakhstan. I mean, in 2010, a gay rights activist was killed here. There are blacklists of public figures suspected of being gay. But this bar has been open since May 2012. The owner claims it's the first above-ground gay bar in all of Central Asia. Apparently, you used to have to know a secret password to even get into a place like this. It is still dangerous to be openly gay in Kazakhstan, and in most of the former Soviet Union. But in small ways, the tide is turning. And there are other signs of cultural liberalization, too. On the very first night we were in Almaty, the biggest city in Kazakhstan, we went to Zombie Fest. Zombie Fest was a DIY punk music festival in the hills above the city. Uh, here we are, some punk rock, hardcore, and experimental music. We might as well have been in Seattle, except that there were horses running around all over the place. And they had to bribe the forest officials to let the musicians play there. It's uh, not very official. <laughs> we'll play uh, till the time someone uh, closes us. And it's interesting because it's not really political. It's more about counterculture. I'm 22 years old and I'm involved in marketing. This is Ruslan Derhanov. We met up a few days later at a hipster bar. Also into music, play drums. We talked about punk rock and his time as an exchange student in Portland, Oregon. The bar did not feel like an oppressive Kazakhstan. It was filled with skinny jeans and ironic mustaches and drinking. But then I brought up what happened to the oil workers in Genozen. I'm not sure if, 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 if I should talk about that because, you know, they're watching us everywhere. So they got the internet watched and the telephones are listened to. That's when I realized that in Kazakhstan, it doesn't matter whether you're an oil worker in the rural west or a punk rocker in the big city. Everyone's life here is touched by the political repression of this soft authoritarian regime. Whether you're a young person in Kazakhstan or in Russia, you're still living in a world deeply influenced by Soviet politics. Many of the protest leaders Sarah and Jessica spoke with explained that their politics were influenced by watching the breakup of the Soviet Union. 
But the end of the Cold War didn't only influence Soviet teenagers. It was a big part of growing up American, too. Hey, hey, this is it, kids. The Russians are jamming our airwaves. This is from a 1986 episode of You Can't Do That on Television, a popular show that was on Nickelodeon in the 1980s and early 90s. The out of coming capitalistic kid skis. You better roll out the red carpet. <laughs> but instead of being taught to mock the Soviets, as a kid, our reporter Jessica Partnow was encouraged to reach out. When I was nine years old, in 1990, I was in one of those hippie peace activist schools that decided I should have a Soviet pen pal. My pen pal was Sasha. Dear Jessica, I've gotten your letter of February 25th. Thank you very much for your photo. I guess I was into it. I don't remember that much. I do remember expecting descriptions of breadlines and secret police. I was surprised by what an idyllic life Sasha seemed to have. Sometimes I go fishing. My hobbies are music. I play the accordion every day. Do you like music? Sasha's letters came in those old blue and red airmail envelopes. Sarah and I tracked one down in my parents' garage. Lennon Street, flat 24. Oh, Lennon Street, that should narrow it down. <laughs> this Lennon Street turned out to be in a little city in Ukraine, a few hours outside of Kiev. In Ukraine, unemployment is high, and corruption is part of everyday life. Back in 2004, Ukraine had the Orange Revolution in response to all this. But after a couple of exciting years, many say it's as if the revolution never happened. Now that I had Sasha's address, I decided to go try and find him. I knew it was probably crazy, but I thought I'd give it a shot. Sasha's hometown is Korsen Shevchenkovsky. We went there in August. It's beautiful. Churches with gold onion domes, whitewashed houses with wooden shutters, old ladies selling fruit and vegetables from little stands. It kind of seems like a little fairy tale village. Eventually, we pull up to a white house with green trim. You see it, what, Jessica? Sasha! Just showing up on a random Ukrainian doorstep made me pretty nervous. But Sasha's parents seemed to know exactly who I was. Yeah. Yeah, you also. Oh, well, hi. Bridge of English, so it's oh, cool. <laughs> nice my name's to meet Jessica. You. It's nice my name is Anna. I'm uh, Alexander's sister. Anna is about my age, blonde, wearing sweats and a t-shirt. She gets her brother on the phone. Hello, Sashenka. This Jessica. Do you remember who you wrote in Seattle? She's saying, Jessica, your pen pal from Seattle is here. Like here, at the house. He's in shock, completely. <laughs> Sasha's at work, so Anna takes us to a cafe where he can meet us on a break. He's been like a military guy for 10 years, then he changed his profession. Now he's working in agriculture for four years. Sasha, in the military? Agriculture? Not exactly the gentle, book-reading, music-playing, intellectual future I was imagining. And the huge guy with a shaved head who showed up is definitely a little tougher looking than I was expecting. Hi, I'm Jessica. It's great to meet you. I show him the letter. Look. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it turns out it's been a while since he practiced his English. Dear Jessica, <laughs> I've got your letter of, uh, of February... 25. Thank you very much for your photo. You look nice on it. 
He stops for a second because he says his heart is pounding. Boom, boom, boom. <laughs> Watching Sasha read the letter, I was thinking about what memories it could be bringing back. For me, it was one letter that my teacher made me write. But for him and his family, it symbolizes a tumultuous time. About a year after Sasha wrote that letter to me, the Soviet Union fell apart. He was 13, I was 10, but we were just uh, looking at the year. TV and... The Soviet Union was in its death throes, but all they could find on TV was... The uh, Swan Lake Valley. And nothing else. And every channel, you were just uh, uh, pushing the buttons, and everywhere was Swan Lake. Sasha's family was happy the USSR was falling apart. They never liked the communists. When the Soviet Union collapsed, of course, the pen pal program ended too. But hard times were just beginning for Sasha. The country was in chaos as Sasha entered his teenage years. Gangsters and criminals practically took over. Sasha didn't have a lot of options. In the late 90s, he signed up for the military. He stayed in for 10 years. But then he got fed up with the corruption and violence there. He came home to work in the wheat fields. So what does a typical day look like? It's horrible. Uh, <laughs> Every day, Monday. <laughs> Every day is like Monday now, he says. Sasha didn't seem particularly happy to me. It seemed like he felt stuck in his job, stymied by corruption, broke, and back where he started. And his frustration echoed what we heard from other young Ukrainians. Soviet times are over, and so are the anarchic 90s, but for many, that hasn't translated to opportunity or prosperity. When Sasha and I said goodbye, he kissed my hand. I went in for an awkward hug. Even inside the unhappy ex-military Ukrainian dude I met, I could still see strains of a sweet letter-writing boy from 1990. Are there museums in your town? What do you do on Sundays? Tell me about your parents. Sincerely, Sasha. Driving back to Kiev, watching the onion domes of Sasha's town recede, I overheard my translator talking to the driver. He sounded angry, and he said, See, that's what our country does to young men. And what's it like to be a young woman in Ukraine? After this break, we're going to meet protesters who are taking to the streets. Topless. You're listening to Generation Putin from the Seattle Globalist and PRX, the public radio exchange. 